Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Chris Estrada quit his day job a few years ago. He was working in a warehouse in Los Angeles, the town where he was born and raised. He'd been doing stand-up at clubs for a while. He had a spot on a Comedy Central showcase for up-and-coming comics. He kept working at the warehouse when the special aired. He kept working at the warehouse when he started getting calls from Fred Armisen, who wanted to develop a TV show with him. He'd take his meetings at lunchtime, wearing a back brace. Chris Estrada even kept working at the warehouse after he sold a show to Hulu because he says the pandemic had just started and why give up a stable gig in such an uncertain time? So, you know, he took a few more months to make sure show business was for real. That show, the one he sold to Hulu, is the reason he's here to talk with me today. It's called This Fool. It's brand new. You can watch it on Hulu. It is great. It's funny and human and surprising and surprisingly sweet. This Fool was co-created by Chris. He also stars in it as the show's main character, Julio. Julio lives in South Central LA, where Chris grew up. He wears punk band t-shirts, Levi's, and Chuck Taylors, just like Chris does in real life. But Julio doesn't have a warehouse job, and he doesn't have any interest in getting into show business either. Julio works at a local nonprofit that helps former gang members adjust to life on the outside. The perfect place for Luis, Julio's cousin, and the show's other main character. Luis just finished up a lengthy prison sentence, and since he went in, things have changed. A lot of his friends are dead, in jail, or have moved on. All of his comedy references are sort of frozen in the late 90s, early 2000s, like There are more than a few Austin Powers references in this fool. Before we get into my interview with Chris Estrada, let's listen to a clip from the show. This comes from This Fool's pilot. In this scene, Julio is picking Luis up from prison. He's late, and he doesn't have his car. Where's your ride at, primo? I let my homegirl borrow it. But don't worry. I got you. I'll call us an Uber. Uber is like the taxi of the future. Uber is like the taxi of the future. I know what Uber is, Damn, talking to me like that. Actually, they have Uber in prison. Yeah. His name is Dumper. And if you give him a pack of cigarettes, he'll carry you around. Like, it's pretty convenient. <laughs> yeah. Damn, my boy. I haven't seen you forever. Hey, for real though, why does your body still look 19, but your face looks 56, fool? <laughs> yep. You got Edward James almost face. <laughs> Chris, welcome to Bullseye. I'm happy to have you on the show. Your show's super good. Wow, thanks, Jesse. That really means a lot. Are you wearing this Love and Rockets t-shirt that you wore in the show? Yeah, I am. I am. (laughs) Big Love and Rockets fan. And uh, I wanted to wear shirts that I wear in real life on the show. That's like a classic Latino nerd text. Like you could hardly go more classic than that. Yep. Yeah, that was totally the aim. I said, I go, a lot of people might not know what it is, but for those that do, it'll mean something. Was there a comic book store in your neighborhood when you were a kid? Yeah, there actually was. Uh, when I was growing up, there was a there was a comic book store 
on West Boulevard, on the corner of West Boulevard and Hyde Park. It's uh, the border between Inglewood and South Central Los Angeles. And uh, it was a comic book called the CBC, the Comic Book Club. This uh, older black dude named Earl used to own it. And uh, that's where I would go get comic books. And one time I was there with my friend Hector. We were like in elementary school and I got held up at gunpoint. That's messed up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just some hood comic book story. <laughs> I was present for a couple of things like that when I was th that age and it's just it just never stops like if, when I think about it right now I'm still kind of terrified yeah yeah, yeah it was such a such a crazy situation I think we were probably in like sixth grade or something we were there like looking at comic books buying some some guy comes in and holds the store up at gunpoint and you know I mean being from where I grew up it's not that you're you've seen things like that before and so it still freaks you out, though. And we, we were kids, but yeah, I can now really laugh at it because I think the guy went in there and he went in there to rob the place for money. But I think he put two and two together and he saw that these comic books that are pinned to the wall yeah. are valuable. So it's, it was just really funny to hear some dude be like, give me that Incredible Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> He's like picking them out. Yeah, picking them out. Let me give yeah. me that one. <laughs> yeah. He's like, I'm not really a DC guy, so yeah, let's. Yeah, he's like, give me, I'm a Vertigo guy. Give me that Vertigo. He's <laughs> <laughs> only into art comics. Yeah, it's like, this yeah. is for grown-ups. So I'm not into yeah. that. I'm a grown dude. <laughs> the comic book store guy by my house when I was a kid. Shout mm. out to Al from Al's Comics. He was like a classic comic book store dude. I mean, God bless him. You know, he was across yeah. the street from the Boys and Girls Club, so. You know, he dealt with doofuses all, you know, doofy 12-year-olds yeah. all day long. So, yeah. you know, and he was always gracious about it to the extent he was capable. That's great. But, like, like now you go into a comic book store, you know, it's like some, like, 20-year-old women with uh, mermaid hair and gauges. Yes. Yeah. Yep. And whatnot. And, like, Al was just like a guy in a dirty T-shirt with a ponytail who was a little mad you were there. Yeah, that's how it was for me. Now it feels like it's a little counterculture-ish, you know, or like, you know, that kind of comic book culture is pretty mainstream or alternative mainstream, I guess, or whatnot. But, you know, back then it was like older dudes who were like, I just love this and this is the business I run. And I'm kind of an, you know, I'm kind of a <laughs> <laughs> You have a bit in your stand-up act about holding mm. the world record for most times losing a fight. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that kind of came from, I always talk about how I, in the bit I talk about, like, I'm not a physical fighter, I'm an emotional fighter. And that, like, I don't win fights physically, I win them mentally. So the idea is that kind of, like, if I may get my kicked, but when the guy's walking away, I'm going to say that. That's why his little brother makes more money than him. <laughs> and his wife's incredibly unhappy in their marriage or whatever. You know, just that idea of just like, I feel like I've always been kind of a smart <laughs> in that sense. And like, you know, I just like that idea of like, yeah, you might have, you know, messed me up or whatever, but I'm going to say something really cutting to you that's going to hurt your feelings. And that's even worse because you clearly don't have respect for me, but I said something so cutting to you that it's going to stay with you. <laughs> How many times have you, IRL, gotten yourself beat up? You know, I feel like, truthfully, it's, I mean, it's not even that many. It's just that the idea is that when I did get into fights, 
I was like, yeah, we'll fight, but I'm also going to say something very mean to you. <laughs> yeah. One time a dude just punched me walking down the street, but that's oh, the right. only time I ever, like, yeah. I'll run. I'll book yeah. it so fast. So, but yeah. a dude would just walk in opposite directions. He was wearing the same jacket as me, pissed yeah. him off. He punched me. <laughs> See, my problem is, is that I'll stay there and fight knowing I might lose. <laughs> I have just this pride thing of like, I'd rather put up a fight, know that I'm probably going to get my ass, but I'm going to say something to you, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm still going to call you a loser, like even though I've, I lost. In the bit, it's your girlfriend says <laughs> to you, that's why your mom is going bald. <laughs> yeah, I, well, in the bit, I say that I always say my fighting technique is similar to that of an angry girlfriend in an argument. I just win the fight by saying the most messed up thing. I had nothing to do with the argument whatsoever. And, I, and that's the example. I go, one time I was arguing with my girlfriend and she said, that's why your mom's going bald. And we were arguing about rent money. <laughs> like what did my poor mother's balding scalp have to do with any of this? You know, so just kind of taking that technique of like, yeah, that's where I'm going to go. <laughs> I'm learning from them. I've seen you describing your character on the show as dealing with an existential crisis, it yeah. borders on nihilism. I mean, there's a scene in the pilot where he goes up to some dudes he's been scared of that are camped out in front of his house yeah. and kind of, you know, talk down to him. And mm -hmm. he basically asks them to kill him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what it is? I think it's also like to just have an existential guy in a working class world. Because they exist, you know, and they exist. And it was just really inspired by, like, there's this movie called Killer of Sheep, a whole movie about this black family in Watts in, like, the late 1970s. And the husband of that family is kind of going through an existential crisis. He works at a, at a meat factory, like a sheep factory or whatever, where they kill sheep. And there's just something so funny. He's trying to describe his depression to his friend one time. He's telling his friend like how he feels, how life feels existential to him. And the only response his friend has who doesn't get what he's talking to, he goes, well, if you're so sad, why don't you kill yourself? <laughs> it just, it killed me. And it just kills me to, yeah. I, I don't think existentialism is sort of unique like in that world. I think you'll find people who are existential in any class bracket or race or ethnic group, but you'll find them. But what you'll find is that people around them usually don't understand what they're going through. It would be easy for you to make your character, Julio, a saint. Yeah. He works at a, you know, a rehab mm -hmm. place for reforming criminals and he's the nerd in the hood and all this stuff, yeah. right? He's kind mm -hmm. of a narcissist. Was oh, that yeah. a choice? He's, that was a big choice. Yeah. Because I wasn't interested in a good guy in that traditional sense or whatever, where people are looking at him like, I was not interested in making the Ted Lasso of South Central Los Angeles. So like, that's fine if you like that, but I, that was not anything I was interested in. The sweetness. I was interested in like looking at like codependency and what is the nature of helping someone. And oftentimes in codependency, when you're helping someone, it's not based in altruism. Like it's to run away from your own problems and you're kind of patting yourself on the back while doing so because you feel so awful about yourself. You have to convince yourself that you're a good guy and you got to tell other people you're a good guy. 
What did your uh, parents do for work? Uh, my mom was a janitor. You know, blue-collar job. She's an immigrant uh, from Mexico, single mom. My dad, um, he was a bartender for many years at an El Torito in Merida del Rey. <laughs> That's still there. And then after that, he worked as a busboy. He worked in construction. You know, immigrant parents, they didn't have formal education, so they worked blue-collar, working-class jobs. Did they expect you to go to college or no? I think they wanted me to go, but I went. I went to Cal State Northridge. I failed <laughs> my freshman year. I didn't come back. And I just, you know, it was mostly my mom. And I think she was just kind of like, well, I hope you figure something out. And I didn't figure out something for quite a long time. I was working like a lot of menial jobs. Up until I started comedy, I had several jobs throughout the years. More with Chris Estrada after the break. Stay with us. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you're just joining us, my guest is Chris Estrada. Chris is the creator and star of This Fool, a new TV comedy that is streaming now on Hulu. On that show, Chris plays Julio, a 30-something guy who lives in South Central with his family. He stars opposite Frankie Quinones, who plays Luis, who is an ex-con and Julio's cousin. Let's get back into our conversation. A lot of people start doing stand-up when they're like 19. Yeah. I don't know a lot of successful comics who started later on in life. My buddy Al Madrigal was like 27 or 28, something like That's that. That's right. Yep. You were even older than that, right? You were like 28 or 29. I was 29. I was 29 when I started. What made you think you could do it? You know, because I didn't think about it in terms of like, I'm going to make a career out of this. Because I think that would have, I think I had probably burned a lot of bridges by that time with friends or, you know, ex-girlfriends or what. I was just kind of like, what am I doing? And I, I think I had been let go of a job at that point. And I always say I was, the, I was one of those dudes that like before stand my personality was dude with three jobs. Like I, I was like, I would just go from work a morning job. I had to work three jobs to get paid. Like I was having a decent full-time job and I was doing that. But then I just remember my nights started getting free and I always wanted to do stand up in the last few years of like in my mid twenties, I really got into stand up. I always enjoyed it, but I really got into it. And, you know, I loved hearing stand up. I loved stand up albums. I also wanted to write, like I wanted to, I liked screenwriting. I didn't know how to do it or anything, but I liked it. And I loved movies. I was really into movies. I loved the Coen brothers. I, you know, I was watching things like Killer of Sheep and, you know, watching tons of movies. And, you know, it's so funny. I remember at 25 telling this woman I was dating at the time, like, I want to start stand-up. And she goes, that's embarrassing. And I go, you're right. <laughs> and then I waited four years. And then um, finally, when I, when I started, I, I think I just said, I just want to try it. I think if I thought about it in the long haul, it would have overwhelmed me. I think when I started stand-up, I had incremental goals. And having big goals would have really consumed me or freaked me out. But I was just like, oh, I want to try it. I want to see if I can get on stage and say these jokes that I wrote. And then it went okay the first time. It didn't go awful. It didn't go great either, just okay. And I said, that's enough for me to keep going. And then I kept going and, you know, then things, I would have really bad sets. But then once I, I was like, once I knew I had a bad set and I 
wanted to keep doing it. I said, all right, there's something here if I want to keep doing this. But yeah, I started at 29 and it was pretty intimidating because most people were actually younger. Like everybody who I was meeting at the time was like 19, 20, 21, 22. And I, you know, I kind of came from this, like, I thought I knew something because I was older, even though I had real no accomplishments. <laughs> like, I just thought I've, I've lived a life or whatever. I should know something. But I knew that that didn't translate into the craft of being funny. Like, I, I think I knew I was inherently funny or like I had funny thoughts, but you know, it's a craft. And I was like, it, it was really humbling to like be 29 and some, I bomb, but then some 19 year old goes up on stage and does great. <laughs> I can understand that. Yeah. There's a great moment in your act when you start talking about bits that work at your job yeah, that you couldn't yeah. bring on stage. <laughs> yeah, I always say that, like, I'm considered a comedic genius at my old warehouse job. And then I, you know, it's just the idea of that, like, I may not be, I don't know what you're going to think about me here, but I will tell you this. There is a warehouse I used to work at and everybody thinks I'm a comedic genius. <laughs> and it's just the idea of differentiating. Because I kind of wanted to find a way of, like, how can I talk about these things I'm living? Or, you know, I was working at a warehouse at the time and while I was still doing stand-up. And I was just like, it just made me laugh, the humor of what was funny at work. Like, you know, so much of what's funny at work only works at work. You know, as a comedian, you work really hard to be smart, funny, and clever. But what's great about being funny at my warehouse job is you don't have to be any of those things. <laughs> and I know that because a few weeks ago, I saw my coworker, Armando. He was covered in sweat from unloading trucks all day. And I walked up to him and I said, damn fool, you look cold, put a sweater on. And they've been laughing about that for two weeks now. <laughs> oh, they can't get enough of it. They can't get enough of it. The other day, Jose came up to me, he was like, hey fool, what was that joke you told Armando a few weeks ago? I go, well, check this out. He was covered in sweat, right? So I told him that he looked cold and he should put a sweater on. And Jose said, how do you come up with this <laughs> You should be a comedian. You know, so. Just the idea of that. I can really crack these guys up with like softball pitches of the worst type of job humor, but it just wouldn't work anywhere else. And the thing is, when they find out that you're funny or that you're doing stand up, they go, do the stuff you do here at work. You know, like I used to go up to some of my coworkers at this warehouse and I used to say, hey, don't tell anyone, but I'm with undercover boss. <laughs> I actually own this warehouse. Like we're filming something like. You know, and it would kill them. But I go, I can't, they would do that on stage when you do sound. I go, it doesn't work, guys. Like, believe me. <laughs> what was the comedy that you got really into when you were in your 20s? You know, comedians like Greg Giraldo, who passed away, he was a really smart comedian that I just thought, like, so, so sharp and funny, wrote really funny jokes. Just felt like him and comics like Colin Quinn, Patrice O'Neill, even comics like Maria Banford that I really enjoyed. Um, I think I was listening to like Mitch Hedberg or Theo Hughley. I really liked at the time. But I remember it was really Greg Giraldo that I just thought, this guy's like not underestimating the audience. I just like when you can make a mechanic working class guy laugh, but also make some pretentious snob laugh at the same time. I really enjoy that because I don't think you're underestimating anyone. And I thought like comics like Greg Giraldo were doing that, like 
it was really great to see. Like he would have just really great jokes, really smart jokes. Like, yeah, he was one of those kind of like, I wouldn't say he was necessarily political, but you know, he was kind of topical, but had interesting takes on things. But also the same thing, like I just remember being like, I remember listening to like someone like Maria Bamford and it just killing me and thinking, well, there's something to this because I'm a dude who's working regular jobs and, you know, I'm from LA. I'm not from where Maria Bamford's from, where her humor informed her from. Like, I think she's from Minneapolis or that area, maybe Wisconsin or something. Duluth, I think she's from. Yeah, Duluth, yeah. yeah. But I just remember thinking, well, she found a way to make that funny. And, you know, I think we probably have lived different lives and it's still making me laugh. So I just always loved somebody that was like, yeah, those kind of comics really informed me a lot. This Fool is set in South LA. Yeah. I think there are a lot more depictions of Latino culture in LA that are set in East LA. Yeah, that's right. Why did you want to set it in South LA? Because I grew up there and I was living there at the time. And, you know, I just, I think I have a tremendous amount of respect for East LA and communities like Boyle Heights and whatnot. I think there's a rich history there. And, you know, Latinos, specifically Mexican-Americans, have been there for a long time. And, you know, activism and movements have come out of there. But that wasn't my life. You know, I didn't grow up there. You know, it's kind of a homogenous neighborhood. Like, you know, it's 90-something percent Latino. And I grew up in Inglewood. And then as an adult, I lived in South Central Los Angeles. So they're right next to each other. And, like, I had family and, you know, I had an uncle that lived in Compton. I had family that lived in South Central. I had family that lived in Inglewood. Like, so, yeah, that's what I knew. And that's where my life was at. And I also, like, you know... I wanted to have a show that like, you know, most of these shows when it's about Latinos, it's usually set in East LA, but I just wanted to have a show where the neighbors are black because my neighbors were black, you know, or I wanted to show that sometimes they get along and sometimes they don't, you know, and being comedically honest about that. Cause that, that's always my, been my version of LA. Like up until quarantine, I didn't live anywhere else. Like I always lived in, a part of LA that was both Latino and black. So that just felt natural to me. And it also felt interesting. Like, you know, sometimes we had great relationships with black neighbors or I had great relationships with some of my black neighbors, but I also went to a high school that had race riots. Like, you know, where it was Latinos against black people, like they would be race riots twice a year. Or sometimes gangs in the neighborhood, a Latino gang and a black gang might not get along. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. And that was kind of like, I don't know. I always just think those relationships are interesting. And I just thought, oh, you never see that. It's always kind of homogenous, you know, and I'd like to see a little bit of that. One of the things that I like about the slightly scary dudes hanging out outside your house, racing remote control cars (laughs) is, uh, first of all, racing remote control cars, just classic activity. Um, Yeah. (laughs) But also, right, it's two Latino dudes and two black guys. And yeah. there's a moment where one of the Latino guys says, last time around, it was blacks versus Mexicans. Now it's Mexicans versus blacks. 
Mm-hmm. And then his buddy goes, I'm Salvadoran. You know I'm Salvadoran. <laughs> yeah. I said right. I'm Salvadoran. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was just really like a, a funny joke to me, but also a way to acknowledge like, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of Salvadorans in this city. Like, you know, a lot of my friends are like, I grew up, some of my closest friends are from Central America, you know? So I just thought it was really funny because, you know, sometimes the, there's such a, I don't know because I'm, I'm Mexican American, but I would imagine if you're from Guatemala or El Salvador, you know, Mexican kind of encompasses the culture or whatever. So, you know, it was just funny for me to sort of touch on this, like, black versus Mexican and the guy being like, Hey dude, I'm, we're on the same side. I'm just, I'm Salvadoran. <laughs> like, yeah. thought it was really, it was a really funny moment to do that. I think when I first moved to LA, I was not used to people calling a Latinos Mexican. Yeah. I wasn't even used to people calling Mexican Americans Mexican. Yeah. But I think it's a byproduct of, as you said, the kind of hegemony of Mexican American culture Yeah, in LA is like, almost nowhere else in the United States. Yeah, that's right. I think there's a lot of that. I mean, because we're just, it's a lot of us here, but you know, growing up where I grew up, there was a lot of Salvadoran kids around or Guatemalan kids. So it was like, in a way we kind of grew up, like I always kind of say this in a way, I didn't grow up viewing myself as a Chicano, you know, because my parents were immigrants And, you know, they didn't have formal education, so they didn't have, you know, that's a term that was, I think, invented here and, you know, was sort of like came through like counterculture and civil rights and politics and whatnot. So, you know, my parents were immigrants and they came out here and they had like blue collar jobs. So to them, they were just like, you're Mexican, you know, and then. I sort of just viewed myself that way. And then as I got older and my, my friends were other things, like other types of Latinos, this term just Latino took over, you know? And I was like, yeah, I'm just Latino dude from LA, you know? Now that I'm older, I understand the context of what it, being a Chicano is. And I have an understanding of like, yeah, I guess I am that, but I didn't grow up with it. It wasn't prevalent in my life, you know? I even tell people like, you know, when I was growing up, my mom didn't even know what that meant. Like, my mom thought that meant gangsters with lowriders. <laughs> like, you know, so, She was yeah. confused between Chicanos and Cholos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They both she just thought, yeah. yeah, yeah, you know, there you go. Yeah, I mean, the, another thing about L.A. Latino culture is this is remains a city of immigrants, right? There are many, yeah. many first and second generation Americans in Los Angeles from all over the world, but certainly from yeah. Mexico and Central America. Yeah, There's also a huge community of Mexican-Americans in L.A. whose families have been in L.A. for six generations, eight generations. And, in you know, there are certainly people who have ancestors who have been in California since before California was part of the United States. Yeah, that tripped me out because that wasn't my, like, I never knew anyone like that. I think, you know, where I grew up, and where I lived as an adult, everybody was kind of, their parents got here in the late seventies and eighties. <laughs> like, you know, I didn't, to me, the idea of somebody's parents speaking English and if they were Latino, I'd be like, yo, that's insane. You know, <laughs> like, or I remember one time I met this girl from East LA or she was like from Boyle Heights. And she told me that her grandfather fought in World War II 
And I said, what? <laughs> like, that's, it's like, that's, I was like, he's been here since then? I, it just blew my mind. I had a conversation with Al Madrigal one time, stand-up comic, who's, he's half yeah. Mexican-American, half Italian-American. Mm-hmm. And uh, he doesn't speak any Spanish at all, I don't think. Yeah. Or his Spanish is terrible, one or the other. Yeah. And like, he's been in a lot of situations in comedy where there is an expectation that he is either going to be like an intensely Mexican-American comedian or he's going to be like a righteous Chicano comedian. He's not yeah. either of those things at yeah. all. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> And like, he has to figure out how to deal with that, right? Like when you're a comic, you have to deal with whatever assumptions people make about you right away or you're never going to get anywhere on stage. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I feel sort of similar in a sense. I mean, like, I speak fluent Spanish because I just grew up speaking it. Like my mom didn't speak English, you know? So I never feel that I'm not enough of anything. I just know what I am. Like, this is what I'm into. This is my point of view. I'm not going to come up here and give you cultural jokes that you've heard before. You know, I got a point of view on things or I have these esoteric thoughts that I think I can make funny. And yeah, so sometimes it, it takes a minute for them to be like, get a context for you, you know? Your character on the show wears a lot of punk rock t-shirts in addition yeah. to your comic book t-shirt there. Yeah. Are you a punk rock guy? Yeah. I mean, I love it. It really had a profound effect on me. I wanted the show to have a little, uh, have that, you know, because I always tell people like, you know, this is not unique. This guy is not unique. There's more dudes like me in these neighborhoods in these working class neighborhoods than there is gang members, you know, like what's going to make the rounds in the news is the sensationalism of gangs or whatever. But the character of Julio or me as a person, we're not. I grew up with 20 dudes, men and women who are just like me, you know? So, but I wanted that. I wanted to have that, like, I wanted to wear punk shirts in there because I I love that. You know, I think I grew up listening to, like, punk and hardcore and still plays a profound effect on my life. Like, I try to sneak little things in there. We had an episode about Ronald Reagan. And I thought to myself, we should close the episode out with an 80s hardcore song that's an anti-Reagan song. So we got... We reached out to the band DOA and we got the song Effed Up Ronnie and closed out the episode with that. Because I just thought like, yeah, if we're doing a Reagan episode, let's have an anti-Reagan anthem by a hardcore band from the 80s. And tried to sneak in stuff. I wore Joe Strummer t-shirts in there, Clash t-shirts in there. Little Easter eggs. There's a episode I have that's like a birthday episode. The whole point is my character hates celebrating his birthday and whatnot. And... When he looks at his text, one of the texts he receives is from Joe Strummer that says happy birthday. And I love when people pick up on that and saw I saw that you sneak that in. I feel like that's a pretty delicate telephone call calling DOA. Yeah. Like you can't yeah. just send the regular Hulu music clearance lawyer. No, yeah. <laughs> you you got to send that letter saying... Hey, I really love DOA. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, hi, I'm calling from Celebrity Family Feud. Yeah. And yeah. <laughs> yeah, we were wondering. No, I had to be like, just so you know, your album Hardcore 81 played a big role in my life. <laughs> like, you got to let them know. But yeah, we were able to just get some music. There was music that we licensed from local uh, local Latino punk hardcore bands from the area. We licensed, we use music by this really great band called Generacion Suicida. 
They're from South Central Los Angeles. We used another song by this really great band called Toscos. They're from Santa Ana, California. It was really cool. I just remember being like, we should use some of their music. These are bands that I like, you know, and who, when I was, if I wasn't doing stand up, I would go see. And it was, yeah, it was really cool to do that. I'm the least punk rock dude ever, but, you know, I knew punk rock kids growing up, going to arts high school and stuff. And, you know, anytime I've ever had anybody on this show who was that way as an adolescent, like the depth of its effect on their life is so extraordinary. Oh yeah, absolutely. What was it for you? You know, I think for me, when I was growing up, it was like the things that were around me were kind of like, you know, you could hear hip hop, you know, hip hop was around, but also my parents' music, you know, Mexican music, Latino music was around, but there was just something about punk and its energy and it's like anger that really just got to me that I just thought, ah, this is great because I already feel different. So this is, this is perfect for that. And then, you know, just like some bands were slightly personal and expressed more emotive thoughts and some bands expressed more political thoughts or, you know, societal thoughts. And that really intrigued me. Like both, you know, bands like Fugazi to like The Clash and like, you know, there's another band called Los Crudos. I wear one of their t-shirts, They're like a Chicago band. And, you know, that kind of anger really got to me. They were presenting ideas. And I thought that was like really cool. It, you know, it was through like, through the Minutemen that I found out about. They had a song called El Salvador and like, you know, reading about like the Civil War then. It, it, it really helped inform me a lot. Or even like The Clash having a band, uh, having an album called Sandinista. I was like, what is that? And then you find out it's like, oh, there was a Nicaraguan rebellion, you know, like rebellion at the time. You start digging deeper, you know, and it was through punk rock that that really kind of opened me up. I mean, it's funny to think about the wars in Nicaragua and Salvador Mm -hmm. from punk rock as an adolescent when presumably there was like lots of kids around whose parents... Yeah. had come to the States because of those wars, or in some cases, maybe themselves. I don't know exactly how old you are, but... Yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's true. Yeah, absolutely. I'm 38, and, you know, there was kids who... You know, the thing about it is sometimes they might have not even known why they were here, you know? And their parents probably... You know, there's people who don't understand the depth of why things are started or whatever, you know? So, yeah, that was really interesting. Or like hearing, I just remember hearing like Rage Against the Machine songs and them talking about what was going on in Chiapas at the time. The other thing about punk rock that like, there's a guy that's not that, Mm -hmm. I have a hard time wrapping my head around is like the physical part of it. Like the way people talk about going to shows is about... First and foremost, sense of community I hear from people, but also like a physical experience of... Yeah, slam dancing, like people slamming and stuff like that. And yeah, I mean, you know, it's so funny. It's something that I I don't go to shows anymore. Like if I do, I'm not interested in doing that. Like I'm 38 and my knees hurt sometimes. But I think when you're young or even if you're my age or older, like you might have an anger or a frustration or like... You know, that kind of aggressiveness of like slam dancing might work for you. You know, 
I think when I was young, it was really exciting, like to be like, wow, people slam dance, like this is cool. And you fall, they'll pick you up and it's aggressive, but it's communal, you know, it was pretty good. I, I can totally see how it wouldn't make sense to anyone who's not part of that world. I remember explaining it to my older cousin who's like not into that. And he'd be like, so you guys just beat each other? Like it made no sense to him. <laughs> That's how I felt when I was, I was yeah. like, what are you? <laughs> Sorry, say that again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so funny. We'll wrap up with Chris Estrada from This Fool in just a minute. When we come back from the break, we'll talk about creating the character Luis in the show and how he kept an ex-con cousin from coming off as a stereotype. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Hey there, beautiful people. I'm Travel Anderson. And I'm Jared Hill. We are the hosts of Fanti, the show where we have complex and complicado conversations about the gray areas in our lives, the things that we really, really love sometimes, but also have some problematic feelings about. Yes, we get into it all. You want to know our thoughts about Nicki Minaj and all her foolishness? We got you. You want to know our thoughts about gentrification and perhaps some positive? question mark Uh aspects of gentrification we get into that too every single thursday you can check us out at maximumfun.org listen you know you want it honey so come on and get it (laughs) period it's bullseye i'm jesse thorne i'm talking with comedian chris estrada of the tv comedy this fool so your character on the show has a counterpart, his cousin, Luis. Yeah, that's right. And his cousin, Luis, is fresh out of jail, Mm. maybe prison, and living at the house, and they're kind of like pushing on each other. Yeah. Trying to figure out that's what. Yeah, that's right. How do you write that character? How do you write a 35-year-old semi-retired cholo without being broad, without playing into people's ideas about a, you know, a guy in yeah. slides with tube socks pulled up to his knees. Well, you know, by knowing those guys, like having those guys in my family, like knowing that they're scary to some people, but hilarious to me, or or like the kind of guys that can joke with me, that have a, that I know them have a sense of humor. It's like, you know, nobody's that one thing. And like, I mean, I always say this in regular life. I had cousins who were gang members older than me. And I go, I, you live in such a dichotomy or such a gray area that you understand. I know they're scary to you. Or I know they've done things to maybe people who fear them or now fear them. But I, I know them in a different facet in that I know them to be scary, but I also know them to be loving or vulnerable, or have insecurities, or be guys who are immature, you know, who laugh at things. And I think that's finding a way to sort of like humanize a guy like that, I think is really, would make the character unique. And having cousins that were like that, and you know, I have, basing it off of my real cousins. How do you cast it? You know, we went with Frankie Quinones, who's an amazing actor amazing comedian, amazing actor. And, you know, in the beginning, we weren't thinking of someone like Frankie. We were thinking of someone more stereotypical, some big buff dude with tattoos all over, you know? And what we found was that oftentimes the jokes 
or like us picking on each other, him saying things to me, it didn't feel like a comedy. It felt scary. And when we had Frankie audition, he had this like big kid energy to it where it's like, he, you know what he brought was a Joe Pesci energy to it. <laughs> he brought a Joe Pesci energy where it was like, you know, he was love to make jokes, love to be funny, but also would kick your you know, he'd be the first guy to get a bat out of the car. He's not the biggest guy in the world. You know, I'm actually taller than him. And like, we then started looking at that image of like me being taller than him, him being shorter. And we just said, that's actually funny. That presents better. Because, you know, the truth of the matter of fact is that also not all gang members are big. <laughs> like, not all of them are big. And I started thinking about my cousins who at some point I was actually taller than them. You know, so... Yeah, that was it. And then Frankie just brought a kind of really just vulnerability to the character. And I think a lot of it was also, you know, with these kind of characters, it's easy to make them Homer Simpson buffoon type characters. And I think it was making sure you write a line where it's like, we want this guy to be funny and immature, but we never want him to feel like he won't kick your And not the character Julio's because they fight each He doesn't fear him. They get each other in headlocks. But... He doesn't fear him because he knows him to be family and, you know, he knows that he's bigger than them. But you never want him to be too buffoonish or too immature that he's not scared to fight. That you go, this guy won't get a bat out of his car or pull out a gun or something like that. So, you know, it's that thin line. He also lives very comfortably right on the line between kind of having gone to seed and not... <laughs> You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. Like, your character works in a kind of homeboy industries kind of situation, uh, like rehabilitation yeah. for convicts mm -hmm. and former gang members. And there's just this kind of one of the big things is this kind of question of what do you do when you're 40 and you have a face tattoo? Yeah, absolutely. And like, he, like, he really lives very comfortably in that area between going getting a bat out of his car and coaching youth football yeah yeah <laughs> yeah where it's like you know it's hard it's like if you've lived that life or whatever like i mean just from growing up from where i grew up you have these intentions of your temper will take over you know or sometimes if whether you're a gang member you grew up in a working class neighborhood that had gangs if you don't you don't have a lot but you have pride and you have a sense of like don't mess with me or or even in my sense, it's like, look, I rather pridefully put up a fight and get my ass kicked than just hand over my money, you know? And I think Luis has that. And I think everybody in that world has that. Had you quit your job when you sold this show? No, I worked a few more months. And then I felt like we sold it right before COVID and then COVID hit. And I remember really thinking to myself, I should go back. Because I think, I don't know that there's going to be TV around anymore. <laughs> but I, I will say this. I remember when I thought we were going to be okay, I was looking, I was like on my computer looking at the news and there was this like entertainment news that said, Disney is developing a live action Tarzan movie. And I thought to myself, if Disney thinks we're going to still have money in three <laughs> years and society hasn't collapsed, they must know something we don't. <laughs> and then I go, if they're still developing stuff, I'm like, they probably have the vaccine and you're going to have to get it with a proof of purchase that you saw the Tarzan movie. <laughs> just, 
<laughs> the headline in Variety says Disney hoarding diamonds. You're yeah, like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. They know wait something. Wait a minute. <laughs> but yeah, I Paramount I, Prexy has cooking oil. Yeah. That that eventually is what's gonna happen though. <laughs> but yeah, I did I, I quit my job a few months after. I mean, the good news about warehouse work is it's relatively casual, so you could you could yeah. get some if you needed it. Yeah, you could. I mean, all of the, I got all those warehouse jobs I had throughout the years were through temp jobs. Yeah, if this doesn't work out in the long haul, I always say I'm going to go back and get my forklift license. That's where the real money is. That's where the real money is. Yeah. Well, Chris, I sure appreciate you taking this time to talk to me, and your show's so great. Thanks, Jesse. It really means a lot. Thank you so much. Chris Estrada, everyone. This Fool is streaming now on Hulu. It is an excellent program. Chris is great in it. Frankie Quinones is great in it. Michael Imperioli is in it from The Sopranos. We didn't even talk about The Sopranos. Everyone is great in it. It's a great show. Go watch it. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. We had a tropical storm in Los Angeles the other day. So if there wasn't enough evidence here that God is mad at us. Anyway, it turned out to be not that bad. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellow at Maximum Fun is Tabitha Myers. We get booking help from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by DJW, also known as Dan Wally. Our theme song is called Huddle Formation. It's by The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team and to Memphis Industries, their label, Go Team, great band. Go check out their records. Bullseye is also on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. Find us in all of those places. We share our interviews there. You can share them. Vents? I think that's right. Anyway, I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR.